You're listening to Boning Up on Osteoporosis on ReachMD. This program is sponsored by the National Osteoporosis Foundation. I'm Dr. Mimi Secor, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Felicia Kosman, co-editor-in-chief of the Osteoporosis International Journal and professor of clinical medicine at Columbia University Medical Center in New York about the top research in osteoporosis over the past decade. So Dr. Kosman, let's talk about research in pathophysiology. What were some of the major papers in this area? This has had a lot of advances over the the decade, and uh, one of the key areas that we've been looking at is the importance of muscle mass to fracture risk. And there have been several key papers in Osteoporosis International that have looked at the relationship between muscle loss, called sarcopenia, and bone loss. A comprehensive review by Hirschfeld and colleagues in 2017 coined the term osteosarcopenia to discuss the concurrent phenomena of loss of bone and and muscle mass. We know that losing bone and muscle with age are both universal phenomena. With muscle loss, uh, the average loss is about 1% per year after age 40, but the rates of both bone and muscle loss are dependent on genetic factors and hormonal factors, mechanical influences, and nutritional factors as well. A meta-analysis that was published by Wang and colleagues in 2018 evaluated the prevalence of sarcopenia and its relationship with fracture incidence. Specific definitions of sarcopenia have differed across different societies, but sarcopenia is usually diagnosed after a loss of significant mean mass as well as a loss of muscle strength, such as grip strength, for example, or a loss of muscle function such as gait speed or inability to rise from a chair unaided. Sarcopenia is associated with recurrent falls, which is an obvious major risk factor for osteoporotic fracture. And the prevalence of sarcopenia in patients who suffer fractures is particularly high in men and much higher in elderly patients with fracture compared to age-matched individuals who have not had fractures. Muscle loss also is accelerated after a fracture occurs at least in part because of reduced physical activity. And this maybe is one of the reasons that there's a very high imminent risk of fracture after the first fracture event. Another really important paper was by Bodart and colleagues in 2017, which evaluated the impact of nutrition and physical activity on sarcopenia. The authors found that physical activity could improve muscle mass, muscle strength, and physical function in individuals who were age 60 and older. The impact of nutrition on sarcopenia was not as substantial, but most of the patients studied here were healthy, and the authors suggested that nutritional factors would likely play a bigger role in the frail elderly and in patients with more comorbidities and no nutritional deficiencies. So that's an area where more research needs to be done. Another key area of interest was the relationship between diabetes and osteoporosis, and this was reviewed by Ferrari and colleagues in 2018. We've known for a long time that type 1 diabetes is associated with a high risk, about a threefold increased risk for many fractures. But over the last decade, we've seen that type 2 diabetes is also associated with an increased risk of fracture, the magnitude not quite as large as what we see for type 1. 
This is really important because as the incidence of type 2 diabetes uh, is increasing, we're going to see a greater and greater impact on fracture risk. The duration of diabetes is one of the uh, predictors of risk, and fall risk is also increased in diabetes, and several of the diabetes medicines uh, are implicated in producing adverse effects on the skeleton. We know that there are differences in the underlying causes of elevated fracture risk in type 1 versus type 2, but both types of diabetes uh, should prompt physicians uh, to evaluate these patients and treat them uh, when appropriate. Another key paper was Morell and colleagues in 2012. They distinguished light drinking, such as one alcoholic beverage daily for women, versus heavy drinking, uh, more than two drinks daily for women and four or more for men. And although they didn't find any adverse effects for light alcohol ingestion on bone, for heavy drinking, fracture risk is elevated. We know that heavy alcohol ingestion impairs the formation and the function of the cells that make bone called the osteoblasts and may stimulate activity of the bone-degrading cell, the, the osteoclast. So this results in reduced bone formation and increased bone breakdown. Furthermore, there are effects beyond those on bone that are associated with heavy drinking that include increased risk of falls, for example, and tobacco use, poor nutrition, all of which can increase the risk of uh, fracture further. One other area I'd like to mention is that many medicines have adverse effects on the skeleton as unwanted side effects. A number of papers in OI have looked at various medicines and their impact on bone health. One of the most important is what's been found with the proton pump inhibitor class of medicines because these are so prevalent and used, of course, to treat gastroesophageal reflux disease and peptic ulcer disease. And there were two papers that looked at this in OI that were highly cited. In 2019, Polly and colleagues performed a meta-analysis of all the uh, literature evaluating proton pump inhibitor use and hip fracture occurrence over a 30-year period, so a very long study, 1990 to, to 2018. This was uh, 24 studies, over 2.1 million patients, and over 319,000 hip fractures that were included. And they found that proton pump inhibitor use was associated with a 20% greater risk of hip fracture and up to a 30% greater risk for the those on higher doses. So this attributable risk is modest to moderate in degree, not, you know, dramatic, but, but certainly present. But because the use of these agents is so common, uh, it's important from a public health perspective. And in the second paper, Zhao and colleagues in 2016 evaluated the risk of all fractures, including hip fracture, and found a similar, perhaps slightly higher increase in risk of both vertebral and non-vertebral fractures associated with uh, proton pump inhibitors. Now, for many of us, preventing osteoporosis has become a much bigger focal point with our patients. So has there been much research on this in the past decade? Yeah, there have been important publications addressing this, one of the most important ways that we can prevent osteoporosis is to try to build as much bone as we can during youth. 
in childhood and in adolescence, the skeleton is most responsive to the influences of nutrition and physical activity. The NOS position statement on peak bone mass was published in 2015 by Weaver and colleagues that reviewed the world literature on the whole subject of peak bone mass acquisition. We know that generally peak bone mass is achieved by the age of about 20 and that the level that each individual achieves is a complex interplay of genetics that accounts for maybe 60 to 80% of the variance that includes gender, but it also includes these modifiable factors, mean body mass, endocrine factors, physical activity, nutrition, and lifestyle. And the paper lays out the research agenda for the next decade and the importance of governmental policies to help implement what we now know about how to acquire the maximum amounts of bone that we can during youth as a protection against the later risk of bone loss and the occurrence of uh, osteoporosis-related fractures. What about other research studies related to nutrition and physical activity? There's been a tremendous controversy uh, about the efficacy and safety of calcium and vitamin D supplementation for both prevention and treatment of osteoporosis over the last decade. One of the most important papers that looked at this was a meta-analysis published by Weaver and colleagues in 2016. Here, calcium and vitamin D supplements were associated with a reduced risk of hip and other fractures. I wouldn't say that the controversy is settled at this time, uh, but most experts believe that calcium and vitamin D intake should be supplemented if the diet is insufficient. In general, for adults, we're talking about a total calcium intake that includes diet and supplement if needed of about 1,200 milligrams per day and vitamin D dose that's sufficient to achieve a, a 25-hydroxy vitamin D level of about 30 nanograms per mil. In the past, we were shooting too high, uh, but our data suggests that 30 would be the target range. A key factor that we can focus on for both prevention and treatment is exercise. An important paper by Gian Gregorio in 2014 suggests that exercise should be performed by patients for prevention of more fractures. And the authors caution that aerobic exercise has multiple health benefits, but for osteoporosis per se, it's really critical to include resistance training to strengthen the large muscle groups and also balance training to reduce the risk of falls. Similarly, Zhao and colleagues published in 2015 a large meta-analysis on the effects of differing exercise programs in postmenopausal women and how uh, these exercise regimens affected bone density. Their study uh, showed that resistance training alone could maintain spine and hip BMD, but a combination of resistance training and high-impact weight-bearing aerobic activity could increase BMD more and at both sites. The optimal exercise prescription for bone health is still being explored. It's likely to vary with uh, patient age, with underlying physical uh, conditioning, uh, as well as with the presence of fractures and other musculoskeletal uh, comorbidities. But this is really an important area that we need to continue to target for bone health across our lifespan. Thank you. 
Now, unfortunately, we're almost out of time, Dr. Kosman, but before we close, the last area of research I'd like to focus on is the treatment of bone disease. Can you share what advances have been made regarding medications for osteoporosis? Sure. There have been several medications that have been FDA approved for the treatment of osteoporosis over this last decade, and they include denosumab, abaloparatide, and romosozumab, three important and potent drugs. I just wanted to highlight papers that look at the issue of when you stop denosumab therapy. These were McClung 2016 and 2017 and Zanketa 2018. Denosumab is a really potent medicine. It's administered by a subcutaneous injection twice yearly. This medicine reduces the risk of fractures in the spine, hip, and all non-vertebral sites. It progressively increases BMD over a 10-year period. But it's critical for clinicians to realize that the effects of this medicine resolve when the medicine is stopped. When you discontinue denosumab, there's rapid bone loss and there can be clinical consequences of this, including multiple vertebral fractures. So it's critical if denosumab is to be discontinued that an alternative potent medicine is initiated to prevent any clinical consequences. Well, in the past decade, we've certainly seen a fair share of research in the prevention, diagnosis, and management of osteoporosis. And I hope to welcome you back in another 10 years, Dr. Kosman, to discuss even more research advances. It was great having you on the program today, Dr. Kosman. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. You've been listening to ReachMD. This program was sponsored by the National Osteoporosis Foundation. To access other episodes in this series, visit ReachMD.com slash osteoporosis update. Thanks for listening.